We have two readings today. Our first reading is from Song of Songs, and that's chapter 7, 9 to 13. And then if you go to 1 Corinthians 13, um, and then we read verses 1 to 13. May the wine go straight to my lover, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my lover, and his desire is for me. Come, my lover, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossom have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you. Now we'll go to 1 Corinthians 13. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always loves, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfection comes, for the the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three three things remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Thanks very much, Irene. Good morning to you all. Great to see you all this morning on this lovely summer's morning. Well, we've uh, come to the uh, end of our series in Song of Songs, as uh, as Mark said. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found it helpful. Um, As we've said before, the theme of the book and the whole Bible is love and relationships. God is love, and he made us to enjoy a relationship with him. So we've looked at different aspects of love during this series. Love and passion, love and commitment. Last week, we looked at love and anguish. But this morning, we're going to be looking at the true test of love, which is love and self-giving. Before we come on to that, can I just say, if this series has brought up some uh, uh, difficult issues for you, maybe from the past that haven't been dealt with, uh, or some struggles you might be having at the moment in relationships, do please come and have a word with any of the pastors. We're here to to help you, not to judge you. And so do please come and speak to us. 
One of the um, descriptions that's been used of today's society is the um, me culture, um, as you'll see from, from this picture. And research done a couple of years ago, um, Britain was found to be the most individualistic country in the world. It also has one of the highest levels of depression and anxiety in the world. And not surprisingly, there's found to be a link between the two. We've spoken in previous weeks about the sexual revolution and how that coming together with individualism has had catastrophic results for human relationships. Because the sexual revolution was about the freedom of the individual to seek their own satisfaction without any constraints. And sex, therefore, became for many people not a giving of oneself to another, but a using of someone else as an object to satisfy their physical desires. And the sad thing is that too many people realise too late that sex is not love, and sex for sheer pleasure outside a loving, committed relationship is nothing other than selfishness. It's empty, and it's destructive. Instead of being the wonderful experience of intimacy and sharing and giving that it was designed to be. A sort of love that we've seen in Song of Songs. A giving of oneself. And by that we don't just mean uh, giving sexually, because the sexual act is expression of the giving of one whole, one's whole self, one whole life. So the question we're looking at this morning is, what does it mean to be self-giving in all of our relationships? What aspects of love can we give? Well, the first of those is we can give love physically. Have a look at the passage here from Song of Songs, which I've been read for us. Um, verse 9 of chapter 7. The husband talks about, may your mouth be like the best wine. Otherwise, he's looking forward to, to her kisses. He's expecting them to be better than the most delightful thing they can think of, which for him is a, a bottle of Chateau Margaux from 1875, maybe, which costs apparently $225,000. At least that's what the insurance company paid a wine merchant when he dropped a bottle. Whoops. But what is this bride reply? She says, may the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. In other words, she acknowledges what he desires and wants to supply his needs as best as she can. She hopes she will give him complete fulfillment. The reason she's willing to meet his needs is, as we've looked at before, because they are committed to one another. Verse 10 carries on, I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. Let's repeat the verse we've seen a couple of times. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his. Or the other way around in chapter 6, I'm my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Because she belongs to him, he belongs to her, she wants to please him, she wants to satisfy his desires. And she's saying that it actually brings me great delight to think he desires me. I want to give him what? He desires. And so she invites him in. She says, come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages, the countryside, the place where there, there is life. She says, let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, if the pomegranates are in bloom. 
There I will give you my love. And notice what it says next. The the mandrakes send out their fragrance and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. This moment is not them being carried away by a moment of passion. It's something she's planned, that she's been looking forward to, that she's been storing up for what you often hear a young couple say is that, you know, I love him, I love her so much, I just want to give all of myself to them, um, which means giving themselves sexually to the other. But as the saying goes, the best things in life are worth waiting for. Does God give us everything we want when we want it? No, of course he doesn't. Why? Because he wants us to trust him. He wants to teach us patience. He, he wants to teach us self-control. He wants the fruit of the Spirit to, to grow in us. And so the greatest gift he's promised us, we haven't actually received yet, have we? Do you remember that verse that Mark put up uh, on the screen at the beginning of um, the service from 1 Peter 1? In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's there for us as God's children. It's waiting for us. It's the same for a couple. The best thing for their relationship is not to give each other everything they want when they want it, but to develop a trust in one another. Which is why we have that verse um, carrying on in chapter 8, verse 4 again, that comes up a number of times in the, in the book. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Why give the most valuable thing you can give when the relationship is still young and fragile? It means that if it does break up, then there is less you have to offer your future spouse um, if you do finally get married. Sometimes the better gift is not giving what the other wants at that time. But what if we're not married or if we're widowed? Um, you know, one of the hardest things that widows say that they miss is that physical love. And not just um, sex necessarily, but a physical embrace, that touch of, of their, their partner. And in the church family, we should feel free to give one another hugs, to, to express love without it being taken the wrong way. Many of the New Testament letters end with the words, greet one another with a holy kiss. Show physical affection to one another. We can love physically. We can also give love emotionally. Let's turn to to 1 Corinthians 13, which is the other passage we had read for us. Yes, it's a passage used um, in many wedding services. I'm sure it'll be very familiar to you. And all these aspects of love here are true for a, a marriage. But the passage is meant to be about the church. It's about relationships that exist between members of the church. Let's have a look at some of them. The key description for us this morning is in the middle there. The fact that love is not self-seeking. In other words, love is self-giving. It starts love is patient. And we'll see the opposite of that further down. It's not easily angered. It's not provoked. Because let's face it, we are by nature those who are easily irritated, aren't we? We are easily impatient. We like to complain. We are a nation of grumpy old men and women. 
But that's not a, an issue of age. We're all like that. We expect things to run smoothly without hiccups. And when they don't, we get annoyed and have a good old moan. And what a great week this has been for having a good old moan. Um, what did you think about the election results? Off we go. <laughs> It'll be different things that annoy each of you. Love, though, is able to overlook the faults of others. Love is able to not be easily irritated by them. It also means when you have been wronged, you don't keep hold of it. It says here, it keeps no record of wrongs. Back in Song of Songs, the woman said, at our door is every delicacy, both new and old. I've stored up for you my beloved. She was storing up good things for her beloved, things she knew he would appreciate and enjoy. And our problem is sometimes not just that we don't store up good things, but that we store up the bad things. I'm not talking about the clutter in the loft, and uh, that is pretty bad. Um, We store up grievances, don't we? We keep a record of wrongs against us, Um, often because we've been hurt, And it's a sort of claim we have over someone. They are in our debt. They owe us big time. I'm not just going to let it go because if I do, somehow that might diminish the hurt I feel. That might diminish just how big the offense was. Well, the thing is, the person who wronged us might actually be completely oblivious to the fact that they have done us wrong. And so what is the point of keeping a record of wrongs? Is it so that when we do something wrong that uh, we can somehow justify it because somebody else did wrong to us? To keep no record of wrongs is to give up something. It's to give up the claim we have over somebody. It's to give up the high moral ground. To come down to somebody. So you're not looking down at anybody anymore. You're giving up your anger. You're giving up your hurt. And actually it's not just for the benefit of somebody else. It's for our benefit as well, isn't it? Um, why would you want to carry that, that anger around with you? Why would you want to carry a record of wrongs around with you? It's only going to eat you up. What do you think our record of wrongs against God looks like? It's massive, isn't it? Does he keep a record somewhere? God says, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. If God is willing to forgive and forget all the wickedness that we've done against him, then who are we to hold on to it? Jesus taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. If we haven't forgiven those who've wronged us, how can we ask God to forgive us? To love emotionally is to give up your record of wrongs. There are three other things there in the middle that love doesn't do. It says love does not envy. Love doesn't boast. It's not proud. Now you may look at others around you and see things about them or their life that you wish you had or you wish you could do. You may say, if only I could play the piano like Neil. <laughs> oh, I don't know why you're laughing. Um, if only I had a haircut like Neil's. Now that can lead to envy, can't it? Don't, don't envy one another. Rejoice in the gifts that others have that you don't have. Gifts that God has given to them. Likewise, if you've been blessed with a particular gift, 
Don't allow it to cause pride in you, but use it for the benefit of others. Everything we have from God comes from God anyway. So we're meant to give it out. We're meant to share it with others. The blessings of love come only if we are prepared to be self-giving. And verse 7 sums up that desire to give of yourself. Love always protects, is protecting others. It always trusts, it always hopes, always perseveres. You trust someone when you know they're trying to put your interests first. We've seen in the election campaign, haven't we? Politicians trying to convince us that they are putting our interests first. They want us to trust them. And you be the judge of how successful they were. A self-giving love always perseveres, even when the going is tough, even when you would just start to give up. We can love, give love emotionally. We can also give love practically. Um, As we were saying, every one of us has been given gifts by God. We may have been blessed materially, um, in which case use it again to bless others. Not everyone has been blessed with wealth. Do you remember uh, Peter, the apostles, Peter and John, at the time of Pentecost? They were on their way to the temple, and uh, they met a man there who was, who was lame. And uh, in, our days, in our days, he was selling the big issue. And uh, they uh, came by him, and they said, um, uh, look, look, mate, I haven't got any money, but um, what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, Walk. Peter had the gift of healing. Maybe somebody here has the gift of healing. You won't know until you actually pray for healing for others. What we do all have is the gift of prayer. The gift to call on God to help others who are in need. Any of us can do that. We're saying the practical stuff for a minute. Before we think, I haven't got much money, so I don't need to worry about that. When we don't have much of something that actually it's a bigger sacrifice to give of it. Do you remember the time when Jesus sat down at the temple? We're watching people coming along and putting their gifts in the offering box. There are all those wealthy guys that came along, pulled out their wads of cash and shoved them in the box. And then a poor widow comes up, just drops two little coins into the box. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So it's not just about what God has blessed you with. If you feel that God hasn't really blessed you with many gifts, think about what he has blessed you with and how you can use that for the blessing of others. The less we have, the greater the sacrifice it is. What is the the thing many of us do have in poor supply? Isn't it time? There's just so many um, responsibilities we have, often very valid ones. Some may be not so valid. But if we have very little time, and we give up some of that time to love others, to serve others, to show love practically, then that is a great sacrifice. That is very appreciated, and it's great. I'm constantly humbled to see the practical love that people show in this church. Even when they've got little time themselves, those uh, sacrifices of giving people lifts, doing odd jobs, making meals for people, visiting, sending cards. It doesn't matter if nobody sees them. Because God sees them. God sees the generosity of your heart. 
We can love practically. And finally, the most important, we can give love spiritually. We can give love spiritually. How do we do that? Let's just turn to um, Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Again, a passage we've looked at during this, uh, this series already. But it'd be good to go back to that. Ephesians 5.25. A passage which describes marriage in this world as a picture of the true marriage in the world to come between Christ and his bride, the church. Let me read from verse 25. Love, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Husbands are called to love their wives, and the way in which they're called to love them is in the same way that Christ loved the church, the same way that Christ gave himself up for the church. What exactly did Christ give up? Well, first of all, he gave up the glory of heaven. He gave up the status that was rightly his as the Lord of the universe, and to live a humble life as a man in the first century. He gave up being worshipped by the, the heavenly beings to be abused by people and to ultimately be killed. He gave up the love of justice to be unjustly punished on a cross. He gave up the intimacy of a relationship with his father to be abandoned on the cross. Why did he give all that up? Why did he do that? Because he saw our need and our need was greater. If he hadn't done that, we would have faced an eternity without God. As husbands, we can't make our wives holy. We can't give up in that way. Only Jesus can make them holy. But we can help them spiritually. We can help them grow in their faith. In fact, that is the most important thing we can do as husbands. Any husbands here, if you are leading your your families well, you need to take responsibility in this area. Uh, You may be thinking, look, I'm working really hard to earn enough money to give my family a good standard of living, to give them the opportunities and pleasures in life. And that's a good thing. But that is not as important as helping them spiritually. Of course, that doesn't mean wives don't also have responsibility to help um, the family grow spiritually as well. It's, It's a partnership, isn't it? Maybe you don't feel actually very equipped to be able to help your family in that way. And that's the joy of being church. That is why we're here together, to help one another. We don't expect people just to go off on their own. We're here to encourage and pray for one another. And this is where the the aspect of self-giving doesn't just affect married couples, it affects all of us here in the church. Because the greatest need of all of us, the greatest need of every member here in the church, every one of our friends outside the church, every one of our colleagues and uh, and neighbours, is that they know Jesus, is that they, if they are Christians, that they grow in their faith. And that is the greatest thing 
we can give someone? Are we giving love physically? Are we giving love emotionally? Are we giving love practically? Are we giving love spiritually? As we come to to the end, the me culture has been for our society an even more spectacular failure than Theresa May calling a snap election. The greatest joy is not found in looking after number one. It's not found in your own fulfillment at the expense of others. The greatest joy is found in giving of ourselves and loving others. The woman in our passage said, May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. She wasn't giving to her husband out of a sense of duty or obligation, but out of love. There's a real joy that both lovers share that I hope you've seen as we've gone through this book over these past few weeks. What is the greatest joy that we can experience as Christians? Isn't it meeting someone's greatest need? As we've said, their greatest need is to know Jesus, to have their life changed by Jesus. Jesus himself talked about this joy of seeing lives change. He said there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent who feel they are self-sufficient, who feel they don't need Jesus Christ in their lives, who feel they are good enough. He also said, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He's been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sometimes we think of God as this sort of heavenly bouncer. He stands there looking tough, I don't think I can do an impression of looking tough. But um, he's there, and begrudgingly, he lets some in, and he says to others, no. No, he's actually saying, come in. Come, and he's pleased to give us the kingdom. He's delighted to give people access to the kingdom. Just as Jesus is delighted in making it possible for us to enter the kingdom through his death on the cross. And that is what we're about to celebrate now in the Lord's Supper. Because in Hebrews it says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What Jesus went through physically, spiritually, emotionally, and spirit was awful. But he endured it for the joy set before him. The joy of seeing people's greatest need met, seeing them come in, to the kingdom. It's a great privilege to share in that joy. So as we finish this series on love and relationships, to be self-giving in love is to serve the needs of others. And the greatest need that they have is to come to faith and to grow in their faith. And so our greatest act of love is to point them to the love of Jesus that he demonstrated on the cross.